Lord, open my lips that my mouth may proclaim your praise. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we are here, our fourth Sunday in our waiting season of Advent, getting very close. Rejoice, rejoice. Uh, Emmanuel is coming. And uh, so we're looking today... Uh, We're going back a little bit in time. Last week, we were looking at the ministry of John the Baptist. But the week before that, we'd been looking at his conception. And so we're going back to that time. If you look at the very beginning in the first chapter of uh, Luke's Gospel, um, we come upon this wonderful story of the angel Gabriel coming and telling Zechariah that in their old age, he and Elizabeth are going to conceive a child. And we had our own Esther in our live nativity being uh, beautifully our Elizabeth. And so I want you to get that image in your head. Elizabeth is, is older. She's advanced in years and yet this wonderful, miraculous event comes into her life. The angel has told her that the Lord will do this. And the story of John the Baptist between the story of his conception and the story of his birth, there is this passage that we read today. And we'll back up a little bit. There's the introduction to that of the angel Gabriel coming to Mary. So at the end of the conception story of uh, John the Baptist with Elizabeth, we read that once she had conceived, Elizabeth went into seclusion for a number of months, for five months, in fact. And we're now at the sixth month of her story. So she's evidently been out of seclusion for a month. Uh, she's now six months on, another three months, and John will, will be born. And that's where we intersect that story with Mary's story today. Of course, Mary has also received a visit by the angel Gabriel. Uh, so he's come to her and told her that she will bear the Son of the Most High, and she will name him Jesus. And she asks, how can this be? Because I am not been with a man. And Gabriel says that it's the Holy Spirit who will come upon you, and you will conceive and bear forth a child, and you shall name him Jesus. And God will give him the throne of his ancestor David and his kingdom or his reign or his rule will never end. And then we have Mary's amazing response. Let it be unto me according to your word. Let it be unto me according to your word. Mary is probably no older than 16, maybe younger than that, a young girl. And yet this amazing message by the angel 
coming into her life. She's betrothed, she's engaged, not yet married. In that time, what would that mean? What would that mean for a young girl of 14, 15, or 16 years old? First of all, quite possibly stoning, if it were found out. Quite possibly sent away from her family. Quite possibly the betrothal broken, and therefore no hope of a marriage. All of those things were possible. This was not an easy yes, but it was a yes. And it was an immediate yes. It was an immediate surrender, obedience, and an absolutely profound trust in God. That whatever happened on all of those things were a possibility for a young Jewish girl in that time. Notwithstanding, what would this mean to actually bear a child without any help? So, Elizabeth has been in seclusion for five months. She's now out. Whether or not there'd been word that she was expecting, certainly in the last month, the word's out. Um, the word's out in the community. She's showing at this point in time. Uh, she's walking around with her baby bump. And evidently, uh, it's out in the small community, uh, but it's probably traveled further afield into her larger family of which Mary is a part. She's part of that extended family of Elizabeth. We don't know exactly the relationship, but she's a distant relative. She's a relative. Those two are relatives. One a lot older and one a lot younger, but both of them touched by God's Holy Spirit. And when Mary asks the angel, how? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And uh, so, where would a young girl like that go? Who would she go to? She'd need somebody who wouldn't hear her story and go, you're in la-la land. You know, you're just making things up. An angel came to me and told me that I'm going to have a baby. And oh, by the way, um, it's going to be an unusual conception, not the normal way. Who would believe her? Who would trust her? Who would have the wisdom to, uh, to be able to counsel her? Who would know what this is like? And evidently for her, Elizabeth is this person. So she hurries to the hill country. I love Luke. There are little words in there that tell us that he heard, he knew somehow or other, Mary's story very intimately. Remember, Luke was not one of the disciples, but he set out to make an organized account in his physician's mind. He wanted it logically um, set out. And so we think, the scholarship thinks that he probably interviewed Mary herself. Because only in Luke's gospel 
do we get this insight into what is going on in Mary's heart? Later on, we'll hear she pondered these things in her heart. She treasured these things in her heart. But right now, we hear that she just didn't go up and walk and go to the hill country. She hurried to the hill country to the one person who might know what's going on, who might understand what is happening to her. And so she goes to Elizabeth. And indeed, Elizabeth is that person she can trust. Remember, we ended off the story that Zechariah had heard from the angel Gabriel that John, who was going to be conceived, would be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in utero, while still in his mother's womb. John would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Elizabeth hurries, uh, Mary hurries to the hill country to see Elizabeth. And the greeting would have been a bit more formal than our hello, how are you, hi. Um, There'd be a little bit more substance to it than that. But immediately that that conversation starts going, what happens? But John, filled with the Holy Spirit in Elizabeth's womb, leaps with joy. There's a recognition there by John the Baptist in his mother's womb that this is the Lord. And later on, he's going to prepare the way for this Lord. But what happens with Elizabeth as she feels the baby within her filled with God's Holy Spirit leap for joy, she just bursts into praise. And we hear again, loudly. Do you get those little words in there? They can be lost. But she bursts into loud praise. This elderly woman is so overwhelmed, so filled with the knowledge, so on fire, so praising God that she exclaims loudly, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored? that the mother of my Lord should come to me. She already recognizes that Mary is carrying the long-awaited Messiah. She doesn't understand, neither does Mary, neither do the others, what kind of salvation that baby will bring. Messiah is going to conquer the Romans was going to take off the Roman boot from on top of Israel. This Messiah will bring a different kind of salvation. But he is already Lord, and there's only one, and that's God. Why am I so favored, says Elizabeth, that the mother of my Lord should come to me, blessed is she who believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Not only is she favored, not only is Mary favored, but Elizabeth speaks a blessing over the fact that she believed that which was promised to her. She didn't question, she only had, how is this happening? But she trusted 
completely. She believed that what God had promised through the angel would come to pass. And we hear that she actually stays three months with Elizabeth, the two of them together. Can you imagine? She leaves just before Elizabeth gives birth to John the Baptist. So she's gone to a place where the baby can grow in her for three months, secure and safe. But the minute that Mary hears Elizabeth's peon of praise, loudly praising. When was the last time we did that? When was the last time that it shook us to the very core of our being of what God has promised to us, of what God has done in us, that blessings pour forth loudly because we recognize it? And it might come with all of those things with which the blessing came to Mary. There's uncertainty there for her. But what does she do? She breaks into this wonderful song that has come down to us through the ages. One of the favorite hymn songs of the church that we know as the Magnificat. The Latin for the entry phrases of the song. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Those of you who are familiar with the office of morning prayer, or for us on Wednesday's noonday prayer, we've got a booklet of canticles. Um, Four of those canticles come from the first two chapters of Luke's Gospel. The first one is this beautiful song of Mary. The second one is the song of Zechariah that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Blessed be the God, the Lord God of Israel. The third one we sing most every Sunday. It's the Gloria. Glory be to God on high, which is the angel's song to the shepherds in the fields. And the fourth is Simeon's song in the temple, the Nunc Dimittis. Lord, let us now thy servant depart in peace, for these eyes of mine have seen the Saviour. See, all of those wonderful songs that Luke incorporates into this amazing gospel. But this song, Mary's song, it's a perfect order of worship. Because she breaks out into glorifying God for what he has done in her life. Despite all of those things that might happen to her, that this promise might do in her life, she bursts into praise. And she begins by what he has done in her life. But she doesn't stay there. You know, Mary and Joseph were not wealthy. They were poor. We know this because when they went to the temple to offer the purification sacrifice, Leviticus tells us that the normal gift is a lamb. But if they can't afford a lamb, they can offer two turtle doves. And that's exactly what Mary and Joseph offer when they go into the temple. They're not wealthy. 
She probably can't read. But the scriptures are just a part of who she is. They flow in her and out of her in this song of praise. You know, kind of like our, our language. Do you know how many times you actually use Shakespeare in your conversation? Um, you probably don't, but there are words and there are phrases in our common day language that come from Shakespeare. There are also many that come from the King James Bible. It's just kind of part of who we are. But for her, it was the full story of God's history, of, God, of her story within God's story. And a lot of this song goes back to Hannah. Remember Hannah? Remember poor Hannah who did not conceive and who felt so very sad and ostracized in her own community because she had not conceived. And she goes to the temple and pours out her heart, crying to God for a son. And Eli thinks she's drunk. Such is her prayer. But he blesses her and she conceives. And she uh, says this beautiful hymn also, Hannah's song. And it's very similar. There are a lot of... There are a lot of uh, allusions to scripture in Mary's song, not the least of which is Hannah's song. But hers is deeper because it's not just for her salvation. It's for the salvation of her people, for Abraham's descendants. And we are the descendants of Abraham because Paul says in Christ, and Christ is in Abraham, Christ comes through Abraham. So also, since we are in Christ, we are Abraham's descendants. So the salvation of which Mary is singing and the praise, we are all gathered up together in Mary's song, all of us, because all of us can magnify the Lord. That doesn't mean that God gets bigger, that God gets magnified. God is unchangeable. He is already great. He is already sovereign. He is already Lord of all. But it means that our relationship with him changes. The more we worship, the more we praise, the more we bless, it enlarges us and it enlarges who God is for us. That's what worship does. It brings us closer to God. I've been uh, reading, or actually listening to the Chronicles of Narnia again on my journey up and to, and it's about, you know, depending on traffic, half an hour to 45 minutes, so I get a good uh, listen in. Um, the BBC did radio theatre, that's what I grew up with uh, as a child in, in England, was, was radio theatre, it's wonderful, um, but there's a BBC production that you can still get on Audible and other ways I expect, but uh, so I've been listening to all of the Chronicles of Narnia, and I get something new every single time I do. There's, there's one time that it's about the four Pevensey children who during World War II um, are sent out into the countryside to get away from the bombing in London and they're sent to this huge house of one of their distant relatives, Professor Kirk. 
And the youngest one, Lucy, um, goes into the, the game of hide-and-seek, and she goes into this wardrobe, and, um, and in the wardrobe are all these fur coats. And she goes deeper in, and she's trying to find the back of the wardrobe because she's hiding, and uh, they're playing hide-and-seek. And she keeps going, and she keeps going. And finally, she thinks, there's this white cold stuff underfoot and she thinks that's not furs anymore that's prickly and she realizes that she's come out of the wardrobe and she's in this land and she finally and she understands uh, later by meeting a fawn that this is the land of Narnia which is right now under the thrall of the white witch where it is always winter and never Christmas but by her coming in and then her other, uh, her two brothers and another sister come in, um, Aslan, who is the Christ figure, who's this wonderful lion, is on the move. And I'll let you go and read the rest of that story. But in the second book, uh, Prince Caspian, Lucy gets back into Narnia again. They've, she's wanted to. And time is different. Uh, when they're in Narnia, um, decades can go on, and when they go back into their own country, into England, it's as if no time has passed. Um, and so this is wonderful, there's so many layers of imagery, but she goes back in, in Prince Caspian, and she encounters Aslan again. And she says, oh, Aslan, you're bigger. He says, that's because you're older, little one. She says, not because you are. I am not, Aslan answers. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. See, the more we grow into Christ, the bigger he is for us. When we keep him at a distance, our perspective is small. And we can try and box him in and make him safe. But when we worship and we give thanks, and the older we get in the journey of faith, the bigger he gets, because the closer we get. The change is not in him. The change is in us. And so Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord. And then she goes on to express the nature of God, the divine warrior, the all-powerful, and the gentle and the merciful Father and Savior. He is mighty. He shows strength. He brings down the powerful. He scatters the proud. But in his tender care and mercy, he looks with favor. His name is holy. He has mercy on those who fear him. He lifts up the lowly. He fills the hungry and he helped Israel. He is merciful because he is powerful. His mercy comes out of his ability to be all-sovereign, 
all-powerful. And so, as he lifts up the lowly, the proud are brought low. In his great tenderness, he comes himself in the form of a babe, still now in utero, to be our saviour. So we have Mary, this young girl, as our model. This young Jewish girl, the mother of our Lord, and therefore the God-bearer. She shows us how to trust God's promises, how to be surrendered and obedient to his calling on each of our lives, how to make him grow in prominence in our lives through the worship of the one who is both our warrior God and the bearer of mercy and salvation into our lives. May we be ready to follow the humble example of this young Jewish girl, Mary. Amen.